Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. I know James has a limited time time frame, so we need to we need to keep going. Cool. Yeah, we're rolling, so we can get going. So James, we've got Dr. James Dynicolantonio on here. Hope I didn't butcher that name too bad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we appreciate you coming on, James. You know, I you you've put out you know two well you know two uh, interesting books here recently. So I guess we could talk on some of some of those subjects. I know you and I have gone back and forth on different things over the last year or two. It's been interesting. Um, you know, one of the topics that Zach and I run into a lot has to do around electrolytes and i know you wrote a book called the salt fix and uh obviously you you're you've done a lot of research regarding that so we should probably talk about that and then you've got a new book out there um and remind me of the title i think it's called like super fuel is that what it's called yep super fuel comes out november 13th and that is going to be regarding well we'll let you talk about that but let's 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 just get a little quick bit about your background and then we can get into this stuff Sure. So um, I graduated in 2010 with my doctor of pharmacy uh, from the University of Buffalo. Uh, and I've been a cardiovascular research scientist for, for five years, published over a couple hundred academic papers. I'm also the associate editor of the journal BMJ Open Heart, as well as the journal Nutrition. Um, and so really a, a lot of what I do is research um, around uh, salt, sugar, nutrition, little bit of exercise, but not too much. So, you know, I've been focusing um, mainly, obviously, on salt, and, and that's why I put out the first book, um, Salt Fix. And so, yeah, I know you and I have gone back and forth a little bit about, you know, kind of, you know, how much salt to take before exercise. So, uh, you know, I don't know if we wanted to, you know, jump into that or, or how you wanted to go about it. Well, let's that. talk about, because I think, you know, like a lot of things, we're, we're starting to discover a lot of our sort of nutritional you know, even some of the clinical medical sort of things we've kind of held is, is, is truth, or we've kind of, kind of assumed for many, many years, many decades, it's turning out that we're seeing a lot of those things are not really holding up under serious scrutiny. And one of those has been salt. So let's talk about, you know, the historical, you know, what we thought about salt, why we thought it's been bad. You know, we've always been taught it raises our blood pressure. It's, you know, it's a cardiovascular risk factor. We should always cut back on that. So let's talk about some of the the misconceptions that are out there, why they're misconceptions that we can get about, get into, you know, you know, how you utilize salt for athletics. And cause Zach and I are both re- really interested, interested in performance. That's what we spend a lot of our time working on. So let's talk about, you know, so if I were to say, you know, don't eat a lot of salt because it's going to, it's going to cause you to have high blood pressure and therefore put you at risk for cardiovascular disease. What would you say? Yeah. So I would say that it's completely false. Um, there's only a subset of the population that actually is salt sensitive. So if you look at the general population, someone who doesn't already have hypertension, 80% of that population will not be sensitive to salt. So their blood pressure 
will not go up uh, when they increase their salt intake. The other 20%, it will. Um, so you just got to know if you're salt sensitive or not. And then even in people who have high blood pressure, um, about 45%, 50% of those people, so basically about only half of those people are actually salt sensitive. So, you know, it's really not even, even from a blood pressure raising standpoint, which doesn't even necessarily mean that, that consuming more salt is bad for you because you're just kind of falling at the feet of a surrogate marker, which even if you do have an increase in blood pressure and you're, let's say you have hypertension and you're one, of, one out of those two people that is salt sensitive, your heart rate still goes down um, when you consume more salt. Generally, the effect on heart rate is actually more significant than the rise in blood pressure. And of course, there's other benefits of consuming more salt, like improving insulin sensitivity, decreasing triglycerides, decreasing cholesterol levels, things like that, uric acid. So all the, when you look at actually all the surrogate markers, really the only one that's quote-unquote harmful in a select few is blood pressure, whereas all the other surrogate markers seem to improve on salt. So that's what I would say to people who are kind of afraid of increasing their salt intake. But the other thing that I would tell people is that we know exercise is one of the best things you can do to lower your blood pressure, and you need more salt when you exercise. And so it's kind of counterintuitive to follow the low-salt advice when you're also supposed to be exercising. So the American Heart Association, they kind of conflict themselves um, or contradict themselves, excuse me, in that they want us to exercise 30 minutes a day, but in diabetics, they want them to exercise an hour a day. And they also want everyone to be on a low salt diet, less than basically a half a teaspoon of salt per day. And unfortunately, you lose about a half a teaspoon of salt per hour of exercise. So if you actually followed both of their advices, you would actually slowly become depleted in salt. Um, so, you know, it just doesn't make much sense. Let me ask you, because you said, you know, for those that are sensitive to salt, how, how do we, what is determining their salt sensitivity? Is there some other pathophysiology that goes, goes into that? Is it because they're, they, they fall into this category of, you know, insulin resistant? Is it purely genetic or do we know what makes someone salt sensitive? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Sean. So in the book, I, I kind of d- dive deep into some of those things, but I would say the most common reason why people are salt-sensitive is because they're insulin-resistant. So if they just cut out the refined carbohydrates and sugar, they are going to fix their insulin resistance, and they're not gonna, their kidneys are not going to hold on to the salt. So basically, insulin is not only a fat-storing hormone, it's a hormone that helps the kidneys hold on to more salt. So when you cut the carbohydrates, you drop your insulin levels, and the kidney starts spilling salt. So you actually need more salt on a low-carb diet. So that's one of the main factors um, why people are self-sensitive. One of the things, you know, uh, and, I, and I think many of the foods that are salty, you know, potato chips, processed food, I mean, you know, is there, is there some issue that, you know, eating these salty foods, just it's just a type of food that happens to have salt with it. That's one of the reasons we, we confuse eating too much salt with, uh, with problems because, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your diet is potato chips and uh, – you know, other, you know, pretzels and all these other salty foods, you know, you're going to probably develop some sort of insulin problems. Is that, is there some truth to that? Exactly. That's hundred percent correct. So in, in the United States, 80% of our salt intake comes from processed foods. So when you track salt in the urine and you look at populations that have a more amount of salt in the urine, it's simply because they're eating more processed foods and getting salt with it. So you're, they're kind of blaming, um, salt for really what the processed foods are causing. And if you look at like Japan or other cultures like South Korea, who consume salt from natural foods and add healthy salts to their real food, they actually consume a lot more salt than we do in the United States, but they're getting it from natural 
healthy food sources and they actually, you know, have, you know, good longevity. Um, they have, you know, one of the lowest rates of coronary heart disease mortality, Japan, lo- lowest rates of sudden cardiac death. Um, so really, if you, if you look at the populations that are getting their salt naturally, it, it actually seems to be protective. Let me talk, um, you know, obviously we didn't grow up with salt shakers, you know, 50,000 years ago. And I know you, I know I have I haven't read the book. Um, you know, it's on the list of when I get time. But let me, where do we historically get salt from? Because, I mean, you know, one of the thoughts is, you know, you know, if we if we were eating some animal food, which undoubtedly I think we were, uh, you know, we probably didn't always hang them out like we do in the U.S. You know, we hang hang most of the meat up for a couple of week here, weeks here. You know, the blood is drained. Uh, where, where, could you get some salt from just consuming fresh animal meat? Would there be a higher percentage yep. of that? Or how did that how did that play out? Exactly. So in the United States, what we're doing, like you just said, we, we drain the animal um, of the blood, we, we hang the meat. And so you've lost the natural salt that would be contained in the blood as well as the organs. So organs have more salt than, than just straight muscle meat. Um, and also blood is extremely salty. So blood contains 3200 milligrams of sodium, which is about, you know, one and a half teaspoons of sodium per liter. And so you would absolutely get that in from a fresh animal kill. You know, you see a lion that's just consumed a fresh kill and their face is completely bloody, right? And so they're getting salt naturally mm. from from the meat, the organs, the blood, but we would also get it by actually following animals to salt licks. So animals would seek out salt licks and then humans would just follow their trails and they would actually consume the salt straight. And so there's a lot of people out there arguing, well, Salt, we shouldn't be salting our food because we never would consume pure salt, and that's just incorrect. We would absolutely be able to consume pure salt either from a salt lick or we would just go to you know brackish saline sources if we were thirsty and we would drink some salt if we needed to get hydrated. Uh, so, and there's, there's a bunch of other sources of salt too. Um, if you look at uh, seaweed, so, so spirulina is uh, a blue green algae that um, humans, the Aztecs, they used to harvest it, and it's been harvested in Africa as well. It grows both in um, saline sources as well as um, freshwater sources. That contains 400 milligrams of sodium per ounce. Um, so you can easily get, you know, salt from, from algae or seaweed as well. Um, so those are just some ways we used to get at. Yeah, my understanding is, is human, you know, blood in general, animal blood, human blood is, is fairly isoosmotic with, with basically seawater. You know, it's basically, you know, kind of very similar as far as the salinity and stuff like that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But let me go back to another point you made because you said that salt seems to improve some other surrogate markers, uric acid, cholesterol, and a few others. Can you talk a little bit more about that information? Because that's, I think that's a lot of, that's novel information for a lot of people. It is for me particularly. So I'd like to hear you, you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, so basically, um, you know, when you consume, when you go on a low-salt diet, when, what ends up happening is uh, your kidneys want to hold on to the salt, and so you, the body becomes insulin-resistant simply to raise insulin levels so the kidneys can hold on to the salt better. And so that's partly why when you cut your salt intake, you become insulin-resistant. And with that insulin-resistance, obviously, becomes an increase in triglycerides, cholesterol, so LDL goes up total cholesterol goes up. Heart rate actually can go up significantly when you cut your salt intake. I've seen studies showing that baseline heart rate's going up 25 to 30%, uh, which is, I mean, that's astronomically high. Uh, But on average, the average person will get about a 10% rise in their heart rate. 
And so even if you get a 2% reduction in blood pressure, which seems to be about the average reduction, the increase in heart rate can easily be, you know, five-fold that. And then um, uric acid as well does um, can significantly go up, so low-salt diets can potentially precipitate gout. Um, simply because, you know, when you, when you cut your salt intake, you become dehydrated. So the, the uric acid in the urine becomes more concentrated. And then also when you cut your salt intake, you're at a higher risk of kidney stones. Uh, one reason is because the dehydration factor. So you drink more water when you eat, when you ingest more salt. So it's a natural way of, you know, increasing and diluting the urine. So it's reducing those calcium salts and other things that form kidney stones. But also sodium competes with calcium in the urine to form uh, calcium salt. So it can reduce, actually reduce the risk of kidney stones when you increase your salt intake. You know, you talked about the, the rise in heart rate, you know, uh, with a low salt diet and conversely the lowering of heart weight. Is that purely a vascular volume uh, phenomenon? Is there something else that's going on that, that, that drives that heart rate change? Yeah, it, there's, so that's a good question. Twofold. One, definitely the increase in, in blood volume, but also there's a reduction in noradrenaline, adrenaline, um, which are your, you know, kind of fight or flight stress hormones. Those markedly go up when you cut your salt intake. Um, so actually, you can see rises, which indicate pheochromocytoma when you cut your salt intake. That's how high noradrenaline can actually increase when you cut your salt intake. And so that's why heart rate goes up as well do do an increase in those stress hormones. Um, and you also get an increase in aldosterone, which has nothing to do with heart rate, but aldosterone can, can stiffen the arteries and, you know, cause fibrosis of the heart and lead to heart failure. So all these counter-regulatory hormones that are being used to retain salt because aldosterone is a salt-retaining hormone has a negative consequence of then stiffening the arteries and stiffening the heart and then raising your heart rate with those stress hormones. Let me uh, let Zach get in here because I know he's going to have some questions pertaining around uh, performance. But, you know, um, what I find for me personally, I know we've talked about that, you know, so, you know how, much, how much salt do you need? Is there some feedback mechanism we have? Can, can we say salt to taste? And is that, is that often adequate for many people or is there some sort of, you know, formula that we have to do? And then let me let, you, let, me let you answer that, that and let Zach get in here and ask a couple questions. Yeah. So I would say for the majority of people, exactly, you do want to follow your salt cravings because it's intricately tied your salt intake to the biochemistry in the body and the brain. So what ends up happening is if you don't have enough salt, the reward system in the brain becomes activated. And so you start getting cravings for salt. And when you ingest more salt, you actually um, get a greater high from it. You get a greater release of dopamine. So that's the body's way of saying the substance, you know, tastes good. You should consume more of it. So in general, your salt cravings are absolutely leading you, just like thirst for water, to the appropriate amount of salt that you should be consuming. And so there was a there was an actual good study in JAMA where there was a young child who would consume just a, a boatload of salt. Um, he was about a three-year-old child, and they thought he had some issue. So they actually hospitalized him, strapped him down to a hospital bed so he couldn't actually consume salt. He ended up having salt-wasting kidney disease, and his body was just telling him, to consume the salt. So his natural salt cravings were actually keeping him alive. And that's why he was over consuming salt. And when he was consciously physically restricted from consuming his salt intake, he ended up passing away from, from salt deficiency. And it goes to show you that you really should, this, this, this is why, you know, you know, recommendations from guidelines, broad sweeping 
blanket statements that everyone should consume a low salt diet can be extremely harmful. That's just one example of how that can harm someone. Um, so the, the short answer to your question is for most people, absolutely following your, your cravings for salt is the right way to go. And, and what ends up happening is if you end up over consuming salt, you, you just won't crave as much of it um, later on in the day. And so there's, you can certainly overload on it um, acutely, but then your body kind of compensates by, you know, down-regulating how much your salt cravings are later in the day. Zach, why don't you get in there and ask what you want to Yeah, no, this is this is all really awesome. James. <laughs> no worries. This is all awesome stuff. And I know, like, for me personally, you know, I'm an, an extreme endurance athlete, so I, I sweat quite a bit. I'm out there working out, running, you know, two to three hours a day a lot of times during peak training. And when I first started doing kind of a low-carb approach – the first thing I really noticed was the amount of salt I that I was eating and you know there were days where I was eating five times the daily recommendation of sodium and it didn't seem to be like you know any negative responses to that and, it, and if anything it was like it, it kept you from kind of getting lightheaded um, and uh, so like my, my question is also I guess is the, like what is uh, what's going on with like with folks when like athletes when they'll go and they'll get like a they'll get a test for like how much sodium they're excreting in their sweat and you might get someone who's got like a really low end of average and then someone who's got like a really high end and it seems to me that they're like pretty big disparities between the low and the high end is that tightly tied to their consumption of sodium so i i guess what i'm asking is if i eat a ton of sodium and go out and run, am I just going to lose a lot more sodium per hour in my sweat than, say, if I would restrict salts or sodium? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the benefits of why you want to consume salt before you work out is because it increases sweat production, which is how our bodies cool off. Mm. And so what will end up happening is if you consume more salt, um, your your sweat will become, you know, obviously higher in sodium. And so it will pull more water with it and allow you to cool off quicker. Um, so Ansel Keys actually showed this in a, in a clinical study in the 1940s. He dosed uh, people with salt, and then he looked at a group of other people who didn't dose themselves with salt prior to working in heat. And what ended up happening is the, the individuals that consumed salt before they worked out in the heat, they had a tenfold reduction in heat stroke, and their core body temperatures were significantly lower. And so part of the reason why dosing yourself with salt prior to exercise is so important is because it'll increase sweat production and it'll reduce core body temperature through that increased sweat production, but also through its vasodilating effects, which allows increased heat to escape through the skin. Interesting. I, I, is that also why some folks who go on like a salt-restricted diet and continue to kind of not drink to thirst, but just drink because they think they're supposed to end up having like water retention and edema because their body's like less willing to let go of that, those fluids, because yep. it's going to lose salt in the process? Exactly. The 100% correct. If you don't have enough salt, you can't get rid of the water. And so what ends up happening in these athletes, especially triathlon, people are doing, you know, long distance, uh, you know, exercise. What ends up happening is if they don't get enough salt and they're over consuming water, they're mixing up their signals too for sodium and water. Um, so they, they actually are craving salt, but they're, you know, they've been told not to eat salt and that it's bad for them. So they just start drinking more water and that further depletes them obviously of sodium. And like I said, the, the body needs that salt in order to get rid of the extra water. And so it can get you in serious trouble, um, 
what's called hyponatremia or low sodium levels in the blood if you're not getting enough salt and then you're exercising because your kidneys can no longer eliminate any excess water that you might be consuming. James, let me just uh, get into, you know, two things. One is, well, I mean, how, do, how, do, how would you tell someone to, to dose their salt? You know, I guess it would depend on how active they are, obviously. And then the other thing is, different types of salt because i often get questions what's the best salt you know is it sea salt is it pink salt is it regular iodized salt is it you know this redmond real salt that i know you've been a proponent of can you talk about both those topics yeah no absolutely that's probably like those two questions are definitely uh you know the most common that i get as well so in regards to dosing i have a i have a couple dosing tables in the salt fix on how to do it um but basically it depends on uh, outside temperature as well as how long you're going to be working out and how, obviously how hard you're going to be working out. And it can depend on, you know, you know how much clothing you're going to be wearing, which determines how hot your body's going to be and how much you're going to sweat as well. But basically, the, the quick way to determine how much you're going to need is how I like to do it. It's basically, if you're just going to work out for an hour, you want to consume really anywhere from a quarter to a half a teaspoon of salt about 20 minutes before exercise. And how I do that is I'll dilute the salt in some lemon juice, just a little bit enough to coat it. I'll pour a little bit of water, maybe an ounce of water, and create a little bit of like a lemon shot, and then I'll just take it all in one shot. Some people can tolerate it um, just taking it straight in, a, in like a teaspoon, like a quarter teaspoon of salt, and then they'll wash it down with water. And it's really important that you, after you consume that amount of salt, you consume about eight ounces of water. And so the reason is, is you want to utilize salt to acutely increase your blood volume. So the quickest way um, to do that is to increase the salt intake and also increase your fluid intake. And that's going to create a great in acute increase in blood volume and then also a really good vasodilation, which is exactly what you want when you exercise because you want an increase in blood flow to the muscle, to the heart. And that's exactly what you do when you, when you preload with salt before a workout. And then your second question, what salt should we go with? The reason why I like Redmond Real Salt is a few reasons. So the difference between Himalayan and Redmond is, number one, Himalayan is about 10 times more expensive. So people are absolutely going to be saving a ton of money if they go with, a, you know, a Redmond Real Salt. But two, if you look at just normal table salt, it, it, they use potassium iodide, which is an artificial iodine. Whereas Redmond Real Salt contains natural iodine, and it's a very consistent amount. Whereas Himalayan salt, you can get really high levels, and then you can get low levels depending on the batch. And you can also, there, with Himalayan salt, comes from, you know, Pakistan and the Himalayan mountains, of course. There are some uh, radioactive, like uh, uranium and other types of radioactive elements that are in there that are, are not found in Redmond. And then you also sweat out, um, besides iodine and sweat, which... Uh, the, one of the reasons why I like using Redmond Real Salt as well is because it contains iodine. And so you can lose anywhere from 50 to 100 micrograms of iodine per hour of exercise. So if you keep exercising, your, your tissues are slowly becoming depleted in salt, but also iodine. So you want to consume a healthy salt that contains natural iodine, but you also lose some calcium as well. And so not a, not a ton, but you do lose enough where you want to get it from somewhere. Um, and Redmond does have a good amount of calcium, about 40 milligrams um, per, per like one or two teaspoons, whereas, you know, Himalayan has, has basically nothing. And then also, if you look at um, sea salts, the reason why I don't really like sea salts from modern, most of them are from modern day oceans, 
is because all these studies are coming out now showing that these salts are contaminated with microplastics and nanoplastics. So we right now the oceans contain about 15 trillion tons of plastic, and we're dumping 8 million tons of plastic into the ocean every year. And so that those plastics and microplastics, they get into the salt. And so if you can find an ancient ocean that was formed millions of years ago and you can get a salt from that ancient ocean, it's not obviously going to be um, – have those microplastics that are polluting our modern day ocean. So that's just another benefit of why I, I, I utilize Redmond Real. <laughs> so I, I'm just, I'm, I'm confused when you say you can find an ancient ocean. I mean, the Pacific Ocean is pretty old. So, I mean, how do you define an ancient yeah. ocean? Yeah, when I, I kind of define it as I, I call the Pacific Ocean and oceans that we use modern day oceans because they are being modern day polluted. If you can find, you know, an ocean that isn't being polluted by by modern day, you know, um, you know, being dumped into like the Pacific Atlantic. You find these these dried up ancient oceans. So Redmond Real Salts from Utah, they mine it. Um, so Himalayan, you know what I mean, is another uh, salt where you're not going to deal with the microplastics because it's not being sourced from an ocean that's being polluted. There's there's other um, salts too that you can get that are from ancient oceans that have been formed millions of years ago that are on land and not in the actual ocean modern day ocean today. So ho hopefully that clarified your question. When you talk, you know, this is something that I, you know, I, and we kind of went back and forth a little bit on this with performance and acute performance and blood volume. One of the things that a lot of people, you know, particularly as they go on a low carb diet, you know, when they're not taking carbohydrates, they complain about the fact that they don't have the vascular pump, you know, particularly when it pertains to bodybuilder types. And so what my sort of thought process was that is, you know, because you're on a low carb, low carbohydrate diet, your insulin is lower, you're not retaining as much sodium and you're not retaining as much water and you're, you're probably not having as much intravascular volume and intramuscular water, which is going to help performance. But, you know, it seems like, you know, for these guys who are interested in this, this muscle fullness or this pump type of thing, it seems like sodium loading prior to exercise would help it. That's what I've seen personally, although I don't really, I'm not really inter interested in the body, but I'm more interested in the performance standpoint. But is there some validity in what I'm saying, or am I just making this up? No, yeah. No, there's 100% validity in what you're saying. It absolutely increases blood flow and gives you a much better pump. Um, and so I don't do a ton of cardio. I mainly uh, lift weights. And so the reason why I, I utilize salt before I exercise is not necessarily because I sweat a whole lot. It's to increase the blood volume, blood flow, vasodilation effects um, of salt. And so you're, you hit the nail right on the head there, um, and that salt absolutely does help with blood flow and, and increasing that pump that you're looking for. Do we have any good data that shows it has, that has an absolute performance benefit, like as in, you know, sprint performance, weightlifting performance, or anything like that, that we can, we can, we can tag onto that, which shows salt loading does increase performance in some, some way. So there's a couple studies. One study was from Tim Noakes. Um, it, I think it was about 15, 20 years ago where they gave, um, I think it was 2,300 milligrams of sodium per liter um, for I forget how long distance it was. I think it was, I think they, they ran maybe six miles, something like that. I can't recall exactly, but there was definitely a, an, a reduction in dehydration um, in regards to people who, who consumed 
you know, a teaspoon of salt per liter of water intake versus those who didn't, or those they actually, I think, tested a lower sodium intake as well, about half of that. So I think one group got um, like 1,200 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid. One group got, I think, maybe 400 milligrams of sodium. The other higher group got 2,300 milligrams. And so I think there was less fatigue in, in the group that got the highest amount of sodium per liter, um, which is actually 2,300 milligrams per liter of sodium is more than what you sweat. You sweat about 1,200 milligrams of sodium per liter. And it's, but it's less than what's in your blood. So your blood's about 3,200 milligrams of sodium per liter. So it's right in the middle range between what our blood sodium content is and what our uh, salt uh, sweat sodium content is. So there is studies showing, you know, you know, decreased dehydration, decreased fatigue. There's one study showing that um, overtraining syndrome is, can be caused by a sodium deficiency in the muscle tissue. And so overtraining syndrome when you exercise and you just keep sweating out salt and you're not replacing it, all your tissues slowly become depleted in salt and you can start cramping. And so, you know, sodium deficiency has been shown to cause overtraining syndrome. And so obviously overtraining syndrome is your, your muscles are weak, sore, fatigued. You can't work out as long. Um, and a lot of tennis and soccer players have this issue. And it's probably because they're being depleted in salt and they're not getting enough. Um, and then there's, the, of course, the one study from Ansel Keys in the, in the 1940s, which showed um, a 90% reduction in heat stroke um, in those who consumed a good amount of salt before uh, working in the heat. And then the, um, besides that, there was obviously improvement in energy in those, in those people. Um, I mean, people were just collapsing, fainting, um, just you know, falling right on their face when they weren't consuming salt before they were going out in the fields and working in the heat. And so I think, I think from those studies, we can definitely say that if you're going to be exercising in the heat, if you take salt before it, it's probably going to improve your performance. I know I've noticed that in my own performance, but I notice it even more when it's going to be a longer endurance type of exercise and it's 80 degrees or above outside. So do you think that like exercise induced heat stroke or even just heat stroke from being outside in, in extreme temperatures is more tied to the sodium thing than it is the actual heat itself based on because it 90% is increases a pretty big number. Uh, was that, that was the Ansel key study you had mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And so if you look at, there was a recent New York times article, I think it came out last year. There was a giant heat wave in the UK and um, it was actually global, too. Uh, Australia got hit pretty bad, and, and the west part of the United States got hit really bad as well. And not a single mention of salt in causing any of those heat strokes and deaths. Um, do, it was just literally all they were talking about was dehydration, water intake, nothing about mm. salt, um, which makes absolutely no sense because when, you, when you're out in 90-degree weather or hotter, you can easily lose more than a teaspoon of salt per hour. I've seen studies where um, soccer players will lose over three teaspoons of salt per hour of soccer practice. So, you know, the heat stroke, the reason why people are dying is, is because the, not because they're not consuming enough water. Normally, that's not the issue. They're not replacing um, uh, the salt. Mm. That's interesting, too, because I, I mean, I live in Phoenix here, so I see plenty of of heat and whenever I go out on the trails or to the parks and stuff, they have all the signage saying, you know, make sure you bring your water or like turn around when your water bottles, uh, a third of the way empty or something like that. And it's like, they never mention anything about salt or anything like that. And you always just wonder like, 
what exactly people are doing to themselves when they kind of don't connect all those dots. Um, I had one other kind of question too, and I think I kind of know what your answer is going to be, or at least an idea is I've had a couple events and there, I mean, they were extreme endurance events, like hundred mile races. Um, and they were in pretty hot temperature where it got up to a hundred degrees during the day. And, um, what I noticed on these couple instances is like when I was running, I didn't have cramps or anything like that. But as soon as I stopped the event or stood still, I'd get really lightheaded. And on, on one of the circumstances, I actually almost passed out. And like right away, I got like a, a really salty broth, like chicken broth. And like as soon as I drank that, like a couple cups of that, it was like a light switch went on. Do you think that is just, uh, you know, probably not paying close enough attention to consuming electrolytes and salts during the activity itself to kind of pair with the amount of water that I was probably drinking in those hotter days? Yeah, exactly. So if you're exercising in a hundred degree temperature, you're going to probably lose about a full teaspoon of sodium per hour of exercise. And so you become intravascularly volume depleted. And so what you're describing by drinking a salty broth is it's bringing back the the salt and bringing back the volume, the intravascular volume that's so depleted, which is why you feel dizzy going from a seated to a standing position because you're so volume depleted. And so a lot of uh, women who have what's called POTS, where they go from a seated to a standing position too quickly, uh, it's called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. When they, when they stand up, their heart rate goes you know 30 beats per minute higher or more. And so instantly I've talked to, um, you know, certain doctors who have this condition and if they consume um, pickle juice beforehand, you know, it dramatically reduces or completely prevents them from having these increases in heart rate and dizzy spells when they go from a seated to a standing position. Hey, James, let me, uh, we'll do one more topic on this and then we'll get into your new book because I think there's a lot of information there we want to go over. But so one, what's in pickle juice (laughs) and then two. Um, you know, let's 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 step away, back away from athletes now. Let's say you've got the, just the average Joe doesn't exercise that much. That maybe one of these salt sensitive guys or may not be. How do those guys figure out how much salt to use? And if they're salt sensitive, what's the strategy to make them no longer salt sensitive? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So, one thing is caffeine intake. So, caffeine and particularly coffee, because coffee has a bunch of other um, molecules in it that causes uh, diuresis and particularly most people don't know that even though that they realize that the coffee and caffeine increase diuresis, it's actually a much stronger, what's called natriuretic or, you know, it causes excretion of sodium and chloride in the urine. And so it depends on, you know, I drink about four cups of coffee per day. And when you do that, you lose a half a teaspoon of sodium or half a teaspoon of salt, 1200 milligrams of sodium in the urine. And so if you're not replacing that back and you're, you know, you're a big coffee drinker, you, you can slowly become depleted in salt. And so what ends up happening is the reason why you don't die right away is because our bones store salt, our skin stores salt. And, and what ends up happening is the body starts pulling sodium from the bone to maintain a normal sodium level, but it also strips the calcium and magnesium at the same time. Our body isn't smart enough to only pull sodium ions. It'll also pull calcium and magnesium. And so low-sodium low diets have literally been shown to lead to negative calcium and magnesium balance. So one of the best ways to up your magnesium and calcium status to make sure you're getting adequate amounts of sodium so your body isn't pulling those, those um, minerals from your bones. And then, you know, the average Joe, 
Um, if they're not exercising besides caffeine, it depends on how many medications they're on because a lot of medications cause salt loss, like diuretics. A lot of anti-diabetic medications cause salt loss. Um, so, again, it comes down to just following your salt cravings for the average person, how, how you know you're, if you're salt-sensitive or not, and, and, and ways to go about fixing that. If you consume, if you go from a low salt intake, which is less than a teaspoon every day, so you do that, let's say, for a week, and then you raise it to a normal salt intake, so about you know one and a half teaspoons of salt. If you get over a five percent increase in blood pressure, um, that classifies you technically as salt sensitive. And one of the ways to fix that, as we kind of mentioned earlier, is to really cut out the refined carbs and sugar, which are driving insulin resistance and making you hold on to more salt. A lot of people have issues with um, uh, high aldosterone levels. And so sometimes there are, um, you know, benign, uh, basically tumors that are increasing the secretion of aldosterone. So people can go on anti-aldosterone medications where, um, or they can have surgery to remove, um, you know, the benign tumor that's causing the increase in aldosterone and then their aldosterone's drop and now they're not over retaining salt. And some people have high cortisol as well, like a Cushing's type syndrome, which can increase, um, uh, the retention of salt. And so you can go on medication for that as well. Um, but generally it's the issue is never really with the salt. There's always generally some underlying factor that's causing you to over retain salt. And really that's, if you can tr drill down and nail down that issue, then salt really doesn't become, become a factor. It's, Let me, sorry, Zach, um, just two, one, because you got, and I wanted to get, get us into this new time, but you, you raised a fascinating sort of point that I want to want to just explore slightly one you're, you're avoiding the pickle juice question you have to tell me what's in pickle juice <laughs> <laughs> no and then the other thing is is there so you talk about caffeine as being a mineral wasting thing and I've, I've seen that where you know people if they drink a lot of coffee or caffeine they tend to have problems with their minerals is there any any evidence that there is an association between uh, coffee intake and say osteoporosis if, if this mechanism holds up yeah, there actually is. And so that evidence mainly holds in postmenopausal women who aren't consuming enough calcium, um, and partly because uh, caffeine can increase um, calcium excretion in the urine as well. So not only do you lose more sodium, but you also lose more calcium. Um, so, so there are definitely links to people, especially postmenopausal women, consuming higher amounts of caffeine with osteoporosis. And then your, your question about pickle juice, pickle juice is just really, there's nothing real, real secret to it. Um, it's just higher in salt. And so uh, a lot of people just, it's an easy way to get a salty broth um, to consume. Perfect. Zach, were you going to, I know you're going to, I think you were going to say something, Zach, were you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask, like, so, you know, a lot of times with some of these, like, dietary, these dietary, like, interventions, more or less, or dietary changes, um, people are going to notice some, some startup kind of, uh, transition phase. So if someone is like on a restricted salt diet because they, you know, went online and decided salt was bad for you, I better keep it. And they're just avoiding it. And then, you know, they read your book or listen to this podcast and say, all right, I'm, I'm all in on salt. Can they expect to see like a goofy few days as their body kind of rebalances and re-regulates? Or is it something that kind of finds its groove pretty quick? Yeah. I, so in those particular people who already are damaged in some way and they're salt sensitive, I kind of see they're, you know, they're jumping in and increasing salt and they're not eating healthy foods, though. And so really the main message of my book is to use salt to eat, you know, higher potassium foods or eat real food. 
Um, and so the worst thing you can do is if you have issues with salt to just start increasing your salt intake and not using it as a vehicle to eat like higher potassium magnesium foods. And so you need to make sure you are balancing um, the salt intake with a good amount of potassium and magnesium. And so that's the goof. The goofy stage is when you're not using salt to eat healthy foods and you just start adding it on top of your already poor diet. That could just make things worse. Perfect. Let's get into super fuel. Let's talk about. Tell us the premise of the book, and then we'll start. We'll start asking a few questions because I, I know I'm, I'm interested in the in the topic. I know we had, I believe it, it has to do with some of the oil consumption. You know, at least in some part, we had a uh, Tucker Goodrich on a while ago, and he's a big sort of advocate for, you know, looking at some of these omega six oils and the problems they cause. But is is that is there something about that in super fuel or what's super fuel about? Yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, Superfuel really is, um, it starts off um, kind of with the history of how we were led astray going from, you know, using animal fats for cooking, how we were sort of convinced and manipulated by basically Procter & Gamble was the main um, at the time in the early 1900s who, who got us to switch over to Crisco, which is, you know, crystallized cottonseed oil. And so, you know, it's a fascinating story where you know, the invention of the cotton gin was sort of like the downfall of of, health, of healthy people in the United States because we were able to now produce so much more cotton. Um, we went from producing like 600 pounds per year of cotton to nine years after the cotton gin was invented, we were producing 40 million pounds. And with each 100 pounds of cotton, you get 160 pounds of cotton seed. And so no one knew what to do with the, the cotton seed. So Procter & Gamble comes along and says, you know, I'm, we're going to press those seeds and we're going to make, you know, cottonseed oil. We're going to use that seed oil for candles and wax and, you know, lighting up homes. And, and what ended up happening is the oil industry then came in in the mid 1800s. And so oil kind of replaced cottonseed oil for lighting American homes. And so you had all this cottonseed oil and you had no use for it. Well, fortunately for Procter & Gamble, a German chemist, uh, named Wilhelm Norman came along and basically invented partial hydrogenation in 1909. He patented it where he was able to take a catalyst, add heat to vegetable oil and push hydrogen um, onto the vegetable oil to partially hydrogenate it and turn a liquid cottonseed oil to a solid fat that resembled an animal fat. And so what ended up happening is Procter & Gamble bought that patent, opened up their own lab and, and formulated Crisco in 1911. And they started basically back in 1911, you had no, they could say whatever they wanted. There was no authority saying, you know, you can't make a health claim. And so they were saying that it was healthier than animal fat. They created recipe books and gave it to everybody for free. And of course, every recipe had Crisco in it. And by 1916, they were selling like 60 million pounds of Crisco in one year, which, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of Crisco in just a few years of actually inventing it. And so we, what ended up happening is Americans switched from more expensive uh, lard and tallow for cooking to these vegetable oils. And they, Procter & Gamble, um, they got behind the American Heart Association. They gave them a $1.75 million, basically. Um, they gave that to them. They, they hosted a radio show and they used all those, all those funds and gave it to the American Heart Association to launch them. And really, even to this day, you can kind of see that they're, you know, the American Heart Association is always demonizing animal fats. And if you look, they are saying that we should be getting 5 to 10% of our calories from linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fat found in these omega-6 vegetable oils. 
And so you can still see there is the, they're still entrenched in that type of dogma simply because vegetable oils lower LDL, even though they increase LDL oxidation. So really, Superfuel goes through that story in depth um, and, and, and talks and, and tells that story of how we got here, where we think these corn oils are healthier than animal fats. So we've got to go back and rewrite the history books about Eli Whitney and say he was now a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Unforeseen consequences, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. So are, are you getting any kind of pushback on some of this stuff from other folks in kind of the medical community? Or is this something that people have a pretty open mind about so far? Well, I think when you when you have the, the dietary guidelines come out and specifically say we should be consuming up to 27 grams of these vegetable oils every day instead of promoting healthy foods that may contain omega-6, there's clearly a delineation, a line drawn in the sand where the, you know, the, the politics, the, the government bodies, the health agencies are clearly not on board to vegetable oils being more harmful than animal fats. But in the book, I really, sh I really go through how it's much more than just LDL, how these, these vegetable oils get integrated into, uh, into the LDL, and it's really the omega-6, the linoleic acid in LDL that oxidizes, which can lead to heart disease. And it's not LDL per se. In fact, you know, animal fats and, and olive oil, especially extra virgin olive oil, reduces the susceptibility of LDL to oxidize. So if we can shift... Most doctors just look at LDL as a circuit marker, marker, and they're not actually thinking about it as, well, is the LDL more susceptible to oxidation? And if they would look at it from that viewpoint, they could actually understand that the reduction in LDL with vegetable oils is not beneficial. It's simply, uh, you know, increasing the susceptibility of LDL to oxidize. Let's... So when we talk about oxidation, you know, we talk about polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and saturated fats. Which which fats are the most stable and most resistant to oxidation? Yeah, so you kind of, you know, bring up a good point in that the double bonds in, in unsaturated fats make them more susceptible to oxidation. And so from that standpoint, animal fats would be the most stable from a cooking standpoint. Um, the only caveat really is with extra virgin olive oil. It only has one double bond and it has high polyphenols that prevent the, the fat from oxidizing. So I would put extra virgin olive oil on the same level as animal fats, maybe even a little bit better simply because the polyphenols in the olive oil prevent the fat from oxidizing. Um, but coconut oil, um, pasture butter, things like that. Um, are, are something that are much better to cook with than these vegetable oils. You know, I saw a, a recent statistic, and, and, you know, I can't remember where I saw it, but I saw, and, and now soybean oil, at least in the U.S., is, is supplanted cottonseed oil, I think certainly is our main, number one consumed vegetable type oil. I saw somewhere that calorically we now consume as much soybean oil as we do beef in the United States, which is pretty shocking to me when you, when you look at that. Is there any, have you seen any recent stats on what we're doing? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So we are, we're consuming about um, two ounces, two to three ounces now of vegetable oils every single day. Um, and so that's giving us about 20 grams of that omega-6 linoleic acid, anywhere from 20 to 30 grams. Our tissue, our body tissues 
um, have dramatically, especially our fat stores, which is a good marker of long-term intake of vegetable oils, have gone from, in the 1950s, they were only 9% linoleic acid in our subcutaneous adipose tissue. It's now being over 23%. So we've had an almost three-fold increase in linoleic acid stored in our fat. And so linoleic acid has a tremendously long half-life, anywhere from one to two years. So you can see that if you've been consuming these vegetable oils for, for decades, it's going to take a long time to get rid of them. And at the same time, when you try to get rid of that, it's a very pro-inflammatory fat that you're releasing from your fat stores. So, you know, there can be issues, too, with dramatic weight loss and an increase in oxidative stress when you're pushing out all that linoleic acid from your fat stores. You know, it's an interesting observation I had when I was when I was operating on folks, and and I would you know I, I a lot have a lot of obese patients. We'd operate, and we do hip replacements and knee replacements. You'd cut in through the skin, and you have a big layer of fat. And I always was kind of in the back of my mind, I was kind of interested. You know, I'd see some of the the quality of the fat was different. Some of it was really white and sort of like uh, you know almost like little rice particles. It was just clumped up, and then and other people had larger yellow smoother slippier slipperier fat it was just kind of you could tell there was a difference in quality in, in human fat i know it's a little morbid but I, I just wonder you know how much diet played a role in that it would be interesting to go back and you know kind of quiz these people about their diets because i just thought that it is fascinating to think that we can change the composition of our body fats by what we eat um and i don't think many people know that and i think i think our diet certainly plays a role in not only our fat but also other tissues our muscle quality our tendon quality so on and so forth. That's just an observation on that, but I thought it was interesting. No, I mean, your, your observation um, is, is absolutely correct in that what ends up happening when you consume these vegetable oils, they, they cause so much inflammation that they start causing your own immune system to go into the fat cells. So you have these macrophages that get turned from anti-inflammatory to pro-inflammatory, and they start infiltrating the fat cell. They start ballooning up the fat cell they actually cause the fat cells to then start secreting inflammatory cytokines, um, which causes systemic inflammation. And so, like you said, the fats that you eat changes you from the inside out. And then you can literally, it changes your fat cell to the point where it can turn, you know, basically an inherent inert fat cell into this ballooned up hyperinflammatory fat cell that's spitting out inflammatory cytokines. It's causing damage throughout your entire body. And so you, you, you can heal yourself by eating real healthy fats and kind of dropping those vegetable oils. Yeah, let's just to clarify for people that don't, that don't intuitively know this, but could you just kind of list what would you consider our healthy source of fat and which would you consider are not? Because we, you know, canola oil, some people say it's really good. Some people will say peanut oil. You know, there's all these, you know, sort of health claims being made or confusion. Can you just kind of give us a broad outline? You know, this is good. This is bad type of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, so when it comes to cooking oils, really the only unsaturated fat that, that I would ever recommend is extra virgin olive oil. Even avocado oil, even though it has a very high smoke point, it has virtually no polyphenols to prevent it from oxidizing. And so now you have this unsaturated fat with no polyphenol protection. And so the smoke point, people get a little confused, think that if it's a high smoke point, that it's going to be the healthiest oil to cook with. And unfortunately, only the smoke point is only determined by 1% of the oil, the, the amount of free fatty acids. The other 99% that's oxidizing is what you really want to look for. So healthy fats, you really shouldn't cook with. You absolutely do not want to cook with canola oil. One study showed that's the, that's the worst fat to cook with. 
So anything that's susceptible to oxidation, which would be the unsaturated fats besides extra virgin olive oil, you do not want to cook with. Animal fats, you would. Taking it a tear up, if you can afford pastured butter, which is going to have more vitamin E, more vitamin K, more antioxidants, you want to cook, you know, cook more with that. Coconut oil is probably the most stable fat if you want to, um, in regards to animal fats. So that's probably a little bit step up above butter. Butter does have a little bit of cholesterol um, that can potentially oxidize, but um, the animal fats and the saturation kind of protect that. So there's not a ton of uh, cholesterol oxidation that occurs, which is why animal fats are so much more healthy. Um, whereas the vegetable oils, the corn oil, the soybean oil, the um, other you know, uh, sesame oils, do not want to cook with those um, because those form these oxidation products that you then ingest um, and that can cross-link proteins in your body. So these, these fats, they basically can form advanced lip oxidation end products where they, when they, the oxidation products from those omega-6 seed oils, they can start cross-linking proteins, which has been shown in some studies to actually lead to neurofibrillary tangles that you can see in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so, you know, the worst things that you, you can cook with, even uh, flax oil, uh, and even if you do cold press oils like flax or cold pressed canola, they're so susceptible to oxidation that even organic cold pressed canola oil can have 5% trans fats. So I try to even avoid cold pressed uh, canolas. The only time I'll use a, an unsaturated fat cold press would be extra virgin olive oil again because the polyphenol is protecting those unsaturated fats from oxidizing. So two other two other points here. So I know a lot of times uh, there's been this, a lot of the olive oil we get has been adulterated. You know, we have, there's a lot of impure olive oil floating out there, whether it's extra virgin or not. I know that's been an issue. And then the other thing is besides cooking oils, because we, 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 we consume a lot of fats that aren't cooked. You know, we have, there's, there's obviously all these saturated fats and, uh, 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 you know, polyunsaturated fats and processed foods. You know, let's talk about nuts. Let's talk about avocado. You know, eating them, these things not cooked. How does that? How does that change things? Okay. Yep. So first question is how to find a good olive oil. One, you're, you're going to want to buy it in a in a dark amber like a glass bottle. Um, you preferably organic. When you taste it, it should have a burning. Uh, you should have a little bit of a burning in the back of your throat from the oleocanthal. That's a good way to know that that is actually olive oil. If it if it's um, uh, has vegetable oil in it, and it's been kind of, um, you know, contaminated with vegetable oils, you're not going to get as much of a burning sensation in the back of your throat. So that's a great kind of self-test that you can do to, to see if it gives you that burning sensation and that oleocanthal that you're looking for. Even a step above that, it'll tell you where it was harvested and when it was harvested, which is kind of, you know, not a lot of olive oils do that, but if you can find one that actually has the harvest date and where it was harvested, that's a potential, um, you know, way to, to find a good olive oil. And then, um, so yeah, how to get fats naturally from real foods. Um, don't fear the omega-6 from nuts and seeds unless you obviously have some you know, GI issue where you can't tolerate it um, because the omega-6 in those natural real foods and chicken as well and eggs uh, contain good amounts of linoleic acid. They're going to be protected um, from the whole food matrix, from oxidizing, as well as the vitamins like vitamin E that come with seeds, nuts, um, and other vitamins and minerals in, in chicken and eggs. You, you, you want to try to consume those sources of animal fats from you know, grass-fed if you can or pastured, simply because the animal is going to have more 
more, you know, grass and plant intake, and they're going to have more omega-3s, less omega-6 if they're being fed um, corn or soy, um, and that can have an effect on, on the fat quality as well. So let me, because, you know, you're, you know, you're a cardiovascular researcher, and so can you talk about risk factors, you know, because we, we always hear, you know, high cholesterol is the biggest risk factor for cardiovascular disease. I, I sort of know that's not necessarily true, but can you talk about, let's rank the top five things that are going to protect you, you know, are going to lead to, you know, heart disease, you know, I'm sure genetics, smoking, some of those things are in there, but what, what do we need to do to protect ourselves from heart disease? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's a few, if you're, if you're looking for surrogate markers, certainly coronary artery calcium, uh, CAC is good. It's better than LDL level, I'll tell you that much. Um, carotid ultrasound, um, if you're looking actually at um, the carotid arteries for the plaque itself, um, ultrasounding the carotids is another good way to test if you're at risk for heart disease because there's a direct correlation between the atherosclerotic plaque and the carotid artery and the plaque that's in your coronary arteries. Um, so you can get an ultrasound of the carotid arteries as well and get a, and get a score. Um, from that. The omega-3 index is also uh, very important um, because if in those individuals who have about a 10% omega-3 index, they're at about a 90% lower uh, risk of sudden cardiac death. So that's better than LDL levels per se. Small dense LDL is going to be better than just traditional LDL. And then there's advanced tests that, that no one's really doing, but they should be looking at like oxidation products in the body. Um, you can look at these um, oxidation products from linoleic acid, they precede heart disease by over a decade, and they are dramatically increased in the blood of people um, who consume these vegetable oils. So, But you can just look at your diet, right? I mean, if you're not consuming those vegetable oils, you're not going to have um, those oxidation products, hopefully, in your bloodstream. Yeah, I mean, that's great. And what about insulin? I know, I know, because Ivor Cummins was on here. He's yeah. talking about hyperinsulinemia being a huge cardiovascular risk factor. And then also, obviously, vascular inflammation. Do we have ways to assess that, or do you think those are important? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein is pretty good. Um, there's there's better inflammatory cytokines. They just don't test for them. Like interleukin-1 uh, beta is probably better. Um, there, in regards to insulin, really it kind of stinks the best test that you want to get is basically a postprandial um, insulin test. Um, basically, Dr. Joseph Kraft kind of invented that. And so where they give you, you know, Joseph Kraft used 100 grams of glucose. Nowadays, they use 75. And he created basically five patterns of, you know, insulin excursions after you consume that glucose. And really, um, if you have a high postprandial insulin surge from a glucose intake, um, that's indica indicative of insulin resistance and, and hyperinsulinemia in particular. And so that absolutely trumps LDL in, in a ton of studies. In fact, if you actually adjust for insulin resistance in a lot of studies looking at LDL, LDL really, and especially if you adjust for triglycerides too, generally LDL no longer even becomes a cardiovascular risk factor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And I know we there's some people out there, particularly some lipidologists that are still, you know, they're they're really they're really emphasizing the, the causality of, of, you know, lipoproteins, whether it's ApoB or something else or an oxidized particle or glycated particle as still being the prime driver of uh, atherosclerosis. And do you have any insight into that or comment on that? 
Yeah, I think a lot of the confounding is happening because when you have damage to the intestine, you get endotoxin that's released um, into the portal system as well as into the systemic uh, circulation. So, so basically lipopolysaccharide or bacterial endotoxin, um, which is a marker of just poor diet, causes an increase in LDL. And so LDL has antibacterial properties. And so um, the, I honestly believe that a lot of the LDL, high LDL being associated with increased risk is really just being driven by an increase in bacterial endotoxin from a poor diet. And so it's almost like don't blame the firemen that are there um, on the fire. Uh, you know, they're just kind of like an innocent bystander in all of this. Yeah, it's interesting. It'd be interesting. There's a guy, Malcolm Kendrick, who's got some interesting, interesting theories on uh, the uh, cause of, uh, you know, atherosclerosis and heart disease. And I think he's he's certainly in the camp of endothelial damage, vascular inflammation, uh, and some of these other things. So I, I'd like to have his opinion on here at some point. James, so tell me, um, you know, the book's coming out in November. It's called Superfuel. Where can people go to find that? Where can people go to find you? Uh, and tell us what else you got going up going on in the near you know the near term yeah so um so people can find super fuel on amazon um i'm actually i'll have a website up drjamesdenick.com uh in november as well um they can you know it'll be in barnes and noble and and uh, target and all that so in november they can get or they can just pre-order it from amazon um people can find more about my research um, on instagram uh, jj denickel um twitter uh and, and facebook and so upcoming stuff, uh, I got a book with Dr. Fung coming out tentatively in May called The Longevity Solution. So um, that book is basically all wrapped up. And then just uh, I got an article coming out on how uh, omega-6 vegetable oils are a primary cause of cardiovascular disease. I have about 30 lines of direct evidence showing that. So super pumped about that. That should be out in a couple of days. So when that comes out, I'll definitely send you the link to that. So you're becoming quite a prolific author here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a way to, I think a lot of people, you know, write books, but they don't have either clinical experience like you, um, or they don't, they're not publishing in the academic literature. And I think it brings a lot of validity to an author when they're actually publishing on a topic that they're also writing books about. And so I think it's very important that I continue to do that work in the academic literature as well, um, just because. You know, I, I think it creates just more, more credibility to, to my work. Sure. Yeah, and I th- I'll put a link to that stuff in the show notes, too. I, I know I'm looking forward to the book, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will want to check it out as well. And, and if I can just follow up with one more question quick um, in regards to, uh, like, grass-fed versus corn-fed cattle or, or beef, um, my, my kind of understanding with that, and I know you said, like, with the omega-6, omega-3 ratios, you're going to get a better balance with the grass-fed. Uh, the way I've always looked at it, and please tell me if you think I'm way off here, is that when you're switching from a diet that's either rich or includes vegetable oils to a diet that that kind of replaces the vegetable oils with an animal fat, like even grain-fed beef, that's kind of like a massive step in the right direction towards balancing those out. And then if you would also then go grass fed versus corn fed or grain fed, that's kind of another step forward potentially, but a much smaller one when you're looking at the grand scheme of things from moving away from the omega-6 seed oils towards the, um, the animal fats. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. Absolutely. I mean, um, when you cut out the omega-6 seed oils, most people are consuming 20 to 30 grams. And so linoleic acid not only competes with what's called alpha linolenic acid, which is the parent omega-3 you get in plants for conversion to the long chain omega-3s. So if you cut your intake of linoleic acid from 30 grams to 15, you're going to have a 50% better conversion of the parent omega-3 to the long chain omega-3. So right there, cutting it out is going to increase your long chain omega-3s by 50%. If you completely eliminate it, it's probably even better. And what most people don't realize is, is the omega-6 from vegetable oils in particular, the quantities you're consuming can actually directly push out omega-3s out of the cellular membrane. So when you drop that 20, 30 grams of omega-6, and now maybe you're getting one or two from a grain-fed steak, uh, that's way better. Even though you're, you know, even though um, you're getting some omega-6, you're getting a whole lot less than what you'd be getting from vegetable oils. And then, like you said, I mean, from the omega-3, omega-6 standpoint, um, switching over to grass-fed is going to give you some benefit, um, but it's not going to be nearly as dramatic as, obviously, uh, dropping the, the vegetable oils. Hey, Jane, I'm sorry, to, I know I know you got to go, but there's one more thing I just thought of that, that I saw. There's a guy named Brian Peskin that, that's, that's done some research. Where he's, he's, he's very vocal, and I'm not sure you know, how valid what he says is true, but he is a big sort of uh, critic of fish oil. He thinks it's garbage, it's awful, we shouldn't be consuming it. What are your thoughts on, on fish oil? Because a lot of people have been supplementing. We've heard for decades, you know, you should be taking fish oil. Does, is, and then there's some recent studies showed it's not very efficacious. And so any comments on fish oils for getting omega-3s? Is it worthwhile? Is it a waste of time? Is it potentially harmful? Yeah, I'm actually familiar with Brian Peskin. Um, we directly address um, a lot of his, you know, beliefs in superfuel. And so um, one, of, one of the reasons why Peskin thinks fish oil isn't beneficial is because humans aren't very good at converting parent omega-3 to long chain. And so he kind of says, well, if we're not good at converting it, it means that it's not beneficial. But we actually used to get so much, um, you know, omega-3s either through seafood eating, um, eating brain uh, out in the African savanna that we didn't need to convert it very well. Um, so that's one. Two, fish oil, um, you got to be careful because you got to get a really highly regulated, high quality product because it's a polyunsaturated fat. And so about 50% of the fish oil on the market will have oxidation products. But if you, if you can and you find a wild sourced, um, like generally from a healthy region like Alaska waters, Canada waters, and they test for the lipid peroxides in the fish oil. Um, I think it, it can be beneficial for a lot of people, um, strictly because some seafood is, is now having issues with contamination from the ocean. Um, and, and, you know, omega-3s have a lot of benefits. Um, and a lot of the studies that are now showing omega-3s to be kind of neutral, they're not showing a lot of benefit. The problem is, is because they're being tested in an American population consuming 20 or 30 grams of linoleic acid. So when you give a gram of fish oil, it's not gonna it's not gonna have a benefit in these sea of omega sixes. Um, whereas the previous studies, they used to have clinical studies in Italy and Japan where the omega six intake was dramatically lower, and and all those studies used to show dramatic benefit. And so I think there's there's a issue with recent studies because of them uh, being in Americans who are consuming so much omega six, it's just not allowing the omega threes to work. 
Yeah, one of the things I talk about with associational studies, I have to, I, I, the question I ask is, does that association apply to all people in all situations? And I think that's some of the subtleties are often lost because we have these broad sweeping, you know, population studies. And we're like, well, look, not everybody's doing the same thing. But would it be safe to say that if you can get a quality, high quality source of fish itself, that would be a better way to get your omega-3s and then a fish oil tablet? Or, or is that, does that not make a difference? Well, yeah, I would think if you can get your omega threes either from krill oil or fish oil, that's that's or uh, or fish or seafood. That's better than fish oil, because number one, you're getting all the vitamins and minerals from the actual seafood. If you can get a healthy source of seafood, though, which is difficult because it can be contaminated with mercury and things like that, so it's such a balance. Whereas if you get a good fish oil product or a good krill oil product, you're not dealing with those potential heavy metal toxicities. Um, so if you can source your seafood from a really healthy quality, uh, source that tests for, you know, mercury contamination, things like that, it's probably a better way to go. Um, krill oil is very sustainable, especially in the Antarctic. That's a great way to go as well. Um, because the processing is so much less, it's much more sustainable and it's more of like a whole food omega three because it's bound to the phospholipids and it has, um, astaxanthin, which is a very potent antioxidant. So I take about three or four grams of krill oil. Plus I do take a high quality fish oil per day on days that I'm not getting seafood. Yeah, let me, you know, I know you got to go, but just let, let's just say you're the, you're the, you know, you, you go to the store and you buy some wild-caught Alaskan salmon. It doesn't say, you know, how much mercury is in that potentially in this. Is, again, is getting quality omega-3 and improving that a, a bigger benefit than the potential negatives of maybe getting a small amount of heavy metal contamination in the fish? I mean, what... Uh, you know, I, I, how do you, because, you, you know, we, we can't make everything perfect all the time. And some people, there's there's cost realities. And so how do we say, you know, this is, you know, 5% bad, but 90% good versus, you know, is just as bad to get the, the, the seafood that doesn't have the testing, you know, yeah. you know what I'm trying to say. Yep, I know what you're, you're saying. I think it's better to get uh, twice a week some wild seafood than not get it worrying about, you know, potential mercury contamination. Um, just because there's so many studies now suggesting lower risks of Alzheimer's, um, dementia, heart disease, if you consume seafood a couple times a week versus not. And so I do think it's important to um, not worry so much fear monger about the, about the mercury toxicity. Um, if you're in, I think it is better to get seafood a couple times a week. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. That's been, Jay, it's been wonderful. Very, very information. You know, I'm glad to hear that you and Jason are teaming up for a book. I just talked to Jason this morning. He's going to come on the podcast too. And so, be fun to talk to him about some of his other stuff, and maybe uh, when that when that other book comes out, you know, with Doctor Fo, maybe we get you back on here. We can talk about that as well, if you don't mind. Yeah, sounds good, Sean. Perfect. Yeah, thanks so much Jack, for coming on. Words, yeah. yeah, our listeners are going to love this one. I'm sure of it. You've touched on a lot of topics that I know we've gotten questions about and want some further clarification on. So it's been a pleasure having you, and you know, thanks for your time and all your expertise. Awesome. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Take care. Have a good day. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. A ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high-quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all 
uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and in and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat, and type in the promo code HPO, and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon, and you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967 that's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R-1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.